Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's... uh... I guess Tuesday night I want to do the uh, parsha today, tonight. Uh, it's being sponsored by the Elbaum family, um, by uh, Howard and Judy in honor of Howard's mother's yard site, which is now, tonight and tomorrow, as Chayabas Yisrael Pinchas or Adele Elbaum. And Ari, send me, Ari Elbaum sent me a little bio of her. And this is funny, I'll tell you why. It says here she's born in 1912 in Antibal. His... His grandmother born there. My mother was born in 1912. But in Antipol, with the shtetl outside of Kabrina, not far from Pinsk. Antipol is really funny. Especially now that there uh, is a war going on in that part of the world. So world attention is being directed over there. If you want to have fun, you go online, look up Antipol. Antipol, now they call it. And they'll say it's a Belarusian city. It's actually near, it's in Belarus, not far from the, not far at all from the Ukrainian border, to use modern terminology ever since the Putin war started. Uh, but it's, I guess, in southwestern uh, Belarus. Now, I'm going to tell you the funny part. There were many towns like this. Antipol is a town. It's a Geisha town today. No, it wasn't. There were towns like this dotted all over Eastern Europe, and which really, they're Jewish towns. They're in Geisha territory, Jewish towns. I'm pulling up on the Wikipedia the history of Antipol, which is easy to do, and check this out. In eight in 1900, out of a population of 3,800, 3,100 were Jewish. You hear what I said? 3,100 out of 3,800 were Jewish. So it's not a Jewish town; it's a Jewish town. <laughs> Everything that's happening in the town is a Jewish t- situation, and they're talking about the Hasidic study halls and blah blah blah. The point is. <laughs> that um, there are many places in which the majority population was actually Jewish, especially before the great immigration to America and all that junk. <clears throat> um, it reminds me of a famous story, very well-known story. They used to say like this, this Russian guy gets on the train in the 1800s because he's going for the first time, I think it was a dentist or something like that, go to the big city, you know, to Minsk. And he gets on the train sitting next to another Russian. They're both time. And one guy says, the Russians said, where are you from? He said, I'm from the little town of Schnippipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipip
or like Shabbos guardian and things like that. It's a different world. So she, uh, Howard's mother, it would be, yeah, um, grew up in a, in an ultra Jewish uh, population environment. Shtetl outside of Kabrin, not far from Pinsk. She had a very tough life, he reports, because her mother died young from pneumonia when she was only three. This is the old days. They didn't have medicines. Uh, and Aaron told me she was very from the grandmother. And she remembered living through World War One. Hear what I said? World War One, not World War Two. So here's somebody born 1912. So when you're two years old, the war breaks out. And when you're three, four, five, six, that's when the armies are coming through, the Germans and the Russians. And she distinctly remembered the Russians beating over her father, who was a from guy. The Russian army was much worse to the Jews in World War One than the Germans were. They killed and raped and this much, much worse. People don't know that. And she eventually came to America in 27, 1927, with her sister when she was 14. Wow, that's a rough life. And she had to make it through the Depression. And most of her family remained in Europe were killed by the Germans. You know, in Eastern Europe, they shot everybody. Her husband died in this country when she was in her 50s, sudden heart attack. That's a trouble, a lot of troubles. With all the Tsars, she was an incredibly grounded woman and built of iron. Okay? She never lost focus what was important in life. She had a tremendous amount of seichel, I would imagine so. Always thought with her head and never allowed emotions to make decisions for her. Gee, I think some of that was inherited. Real litvak. Family was everything to her. She made it devoted to Torah. Raising a Jewish family, she thought of others. Although she wasn't someone who mince words, he said even in her old age she wants to be Giddish in front of those who can understand it because it was nit shane. And by the way, she's a second cousin of Chaim Weitzman and died at 95. Matriarch of the family. It's a very nice little uh, paragraph. So I paid, I'm happy to pay tribute to the memory and to the Elbaum family. And now let's take a look at the parsha over here by Ikra, you know, beginning with all the carbonus, all the rest of it, which is very difficult to get into unless you simply want to go to symbolic root. But I'll tell you something funny that occurred to me. It so happens that it's parsha zohar. It's not intrinsic to Vayikra, usually it's not. But this year, because Adarisha and Adarshani, because of leap year, etc. So it comes so it comes out, as we all know, that this coming Shabbos, the laning is going to be Vayikra, but the Haftar will be Pasha Zohar, about King Saul and Agag and all that business. Now, why am I saying that's funny? This, the, here's the answer. The Pasha of Vayikra is all about the different various Karbonas. It begins the long discussion in Vayikra and Saab about the various types of Karbonas, the Ola, the Chattas, the Shlomim, etc. Okay? And it sounds like Karbonas are very important. Otherwise, why does the Torah go through so much trouble to tell you this ritual has to be this way and that ritual has to be that way? I've said before, and I just don't feel like pulling it out now. If you want to get a handle on Parshish Vayikran Sav, uh, yeah, Ikran Sav, uh, the way to do it, and I'm speaking seriously now, is to get the stone chumash here. I'll just get it here to get the stone chumash and go all the way to the back. Um, in the 1290s, I guess. Yeah, you go all the way from uh, 1291, and they have these really good charts. I'm I'm serious. Uh, for the animal offerings, and then for the list, and on 1292, 1293, and for the menachos and so forth. It's only two or three, four pages, and I think for most people, unless you're a uh, kachim person, which I don't think most people are, um, it's much easier to get a handle. On uh, what's going on here, for example, uh, you'll see at most of the carbonas, it doesn't involve chametz. Just just off the top of the you know, of my head, you know, 
And uh, you see the types of animals that are used over here, which is a limited number. You got your lamb, your kid, your calf, your ram, bull, goat, and cattle. That's it. And uh, things like that, which I think are a handy-dandy way to get at least a basic grasp of what's going in in the book of Aircraft. Now, uh, what's funny is, so it sounds like carbonus are important. People have wondered about that, but nevertheless, it sounds like carbonus are like super important. The Torah tells you this should be done on the right side of the altar and with the with the left hand, the right hand, and so forth. Now, why is that funny? Because in this week's Haftorah, everybody knows the famous story of King Saul and Agag and how he failed to kill him and all the rest of it. So Hashem tells him to go kill Adamalek. He leaves behind King Agag and some of the cattle. When the prophet Samuel, and you know the story very well, comes and he says, what's the sound of the cattle that I hear over here? Right? And King Saul says, I reserved them for a sacrifice. I took him from the Amalekites. The people saved the best of the cattle and the sheep. For a carbon, like a, a Thanksgiving offering. You know, thank the Lord. Hey, damn. And um, so what's wrong with that? So again... Hashem had told him in the beginning of the Torah, and wipe everything out. No pity. And Hashem told him, this is in Pasi Gimel in the Harf Torah today, means even the, the, the animals. Right? You go, as the American general once said, you go Old Testament on them. And instead, King Saul saved now, let's assume that he's telling the truth. So he did it for a good reason. At least one would think it's a good reason. As we all know, Shmuel blew up on him. At God's command. Let me tell you what, what, what God said. And then he said like this, etc., etc. Now, look here. You, did, you didn't listen. You went after the spoils. So King Saul says... You know, we did it to bring carbonus to Hashem. And he, he meant it. We're bringing back the spoils. We're not going to eat it. We're not going to take these animals home. So what's the problem? We're going to use the word carbon with the best intentions to thank your brother for the victory he gave us. And what does Prophet Samuel answer? Carbonus. Who gives a hoof for carbonus? Isn't that funny in, as a Haftarah in Parsha Vayikra? Why are you Hashem Wachem? Kishmo Hashem. You think God cares about Olus' Wachem? He wants you to listen to Kol Hashem. He neshmo tov. Listening to Hashem is better than a Zevach Tov. Lahakshiv, and to pay attention to what God wants you, is better Mechelevi Elam. Well, really? So then why do you have no Parsha Vayikra? Why do you have just be, uh, a, a, as we see in English, just be a good person? Listen to the voice of Hashem. Kichatas, and then he really blasts them. Let's put it this way: overboard, overboard, because he goes. Yeah, let me get the English out here. He, uh, it's a very vivid language, and a very good Hebrew, but very vivid language. And he says to Saul uh, things that you know to, tr to tell you the truth are a little overboard, but obviously Hashem doesn't consider overboard. I think I did a podcast on it last week. But he says like this, Kichatas Kesem Meri, 
Disobedience is like kesem, it's like the sin of conjuring. Right? Katas, Mary, that's from a language of rebellion. What you did is katas kesem. It's like doing witchcraft. No, you did a gavaldika evil, avera. The oven usrafim hapsar. And the other thing you did, you defied Hashem. It's like oven utrafim. It's like idols and having trophim. Okay? Yan says, Dvar Hashem, since you were, had, had me used to contempt for Hashem, Hashem have contempt for you. So, wow, this is like, the, isn't that funny? This is in Parsha Vayikra. He's basically saying like this, Aqua Carbonus. Well, not really. Not exactly. What he's saying is, is that it's more thoughtful, okay? Not exactly. What Shmuel Novi is saying is as follows. The idea behind the and it's very, very interesting, and I would even say it's somewhat Maimonidean. The Rambam is the leader of all those who look for symbolism in the various carbons, because it's hard to make sense of it otherwise. Who cares if you do with the left side, the right side, the this kind of knife, that thing, that, you know, like, who cares? At the end of the day, what's Hashem need this for? He doesn't need, he doesn't really eat it. So why does it say it's a reach nechoach, it smells good, and Hashem wants it, and blah, 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 all that stuff. Why, why, why talk that kind of language if you don't mean it? Now, the Rambam says very famously, and I've done this in the past, in the Morn of Vuchim, that the Gomorrah was a concession to the way people thought at that time. Uh, since they were into um, sacrifices, so if you try to make a Jewish religion which has no sacrifices, they would, the, the people at that time in their state of being would think it's not a real religion and they would have contempt for it. Because everybody else's religion involved Carbonus. LMI will have Carbonus over here, but we'll do a Kenegade of Azur. If they do say do something with the left hand, we'll say do, do something with the right hand. If they do say you do it on the north side, we'll say on the south side. If they say, for example, no salt and yes honey, in our partial we'll say today, yes salt and no honey. The reverse. And the whole thing is the old Kenegade, whatever they're doing. Mind you, the same Ramba, and again, I did this last year, I believe, in uh, Hilchus uh, Carbonus, you know, in, in Kachem, in the Sefer uh, uh, Avoda, I guess, uh, has a completely different take. He's old, oh, the Carbonus is like Kabbalah, the whole world stands on the on the Carbonus. So notice he talks both ways. Obviously, in the Morning of Vukim, he's speaking for a left-wing audience, and in the, uh, what do you call it, the, the uh, Mishnah Torah, he's speaking for a right-wing audience, uh, which is the real Rambam. The real Rambam is the one who knows how to speak to two audiences. You get it? You know how it goes. The modern will say, oh, this taker, and that's a tuple. The from will say, this taker, and that's a tuple. They argue. But the Hemis says, the Rambam was above it all, and he knew how to deploy it to each one, and there's this aspect to it, and that aspect to it. Really, there really is. And, uh, and Gamarno. Now, the point of all the Rambam stuff, that this is connected to the pagan custom here, and that's connected to the pagan custom there, the point of all that is exactly the Iker is not the Karbonus per se. The Iker is listening to the command of Hashem the way he tells you to do it. After all, the Ramam of all people knows you can't really come up with a reason for a mitzvah. Or I should, uh, let me rephrase it. You can't come up with the reason for a mitzvah because God's infinite thing. You can't even say God is infinite. He invented infinity. You know, it's beyond, beyond Hasagas. But if you want to talk to left-wingers who need 
some kind of rational interpretation. I repeat, some kind of rational interpretation. I would even say all people are looking for some kind of rational interpretation. Uh, the only difference is one thinks that the rational interpretation comprehends the totality of the mitzvah, and the other one does not. So if you're looking like that, so, you know, you go perhaps the Rambam's route or something like that, something along those lines, you know, with historical, archaeological reasons. But the key point is to shmo to follow the directions of Hashem. If Hashem would have said, do it another way, you would have done it another way. So in other words, it's not that carbonus reflect a uh, deep reality, because that would sound like that reality is higher than God. The carbonus reflect the reality that God created, and if he feels like it, he could give it a different way. And had it be given at a different time, in a different place, perhaps the carbonus would look differently. That's the meaning of it. But because Hashem chose to give it at the time and place he did, so he used this in this system, which has a permanent importance, but may reflect the time in which it's given. That would be, as I understand it, the way the Rambam would approach this kind of business. Uh, the key element being, that the key point is, you follow the way Hashem told you to do it. Uh, and the idea is that you wean people away from, uh, what's the right word? Things that are Moshech bad customs that can draw drag you in like an undertow into a life of idolatry, of a Zorah, especially Gilarais. The big thing with the Carbonus in the old days, at least in the Middle East, where the Jews lived, especially in, in um, the area of Palestine and Syria and Lebanon, those areas, so the Canaanite people, as we call them, so their idolatrous, idolatrous practice was heavy, very heavily sexualized. If you look at the um, archaeologists, that's what they'll show you. And uh, that's the way they saw it. It was all fertility-oriented. Uh, there's even a Chazal that says the Jewish people, when they did a Vodazar, they did just an excuse for Gil Arise. I can understand that. I mean, you know, I I get that. <laughs> so anything you find in Parshat Vayikra and Tzav and Shemini and all the rest of it is to negate that, to oppose that, to make it that whatever you do in terms of Carbonus a, does not lead you in the wrong direction, and B, leads you in a, in a, in, away from that. But it's very interesting, and the Rama mentions this, that in order to do this, you need a highly controlled environment. Carbonus are too dangerous to be left like guns to people without a license. You have to have a license. And as you perhaps know, the way we understand the Jewish history, um, the Carbonus were uh, the products of a slow but very intense period evolution of centralization. By that I mean the Bumas. There was a time when the Bumas were okay, but eventually it moved to the point that the Bumas were not okay. The Bumas not being okay means all the components can only take place in one place. So if I'm a farmer and I lived in the time of Bayes Rishon, let's say for argument's sake, in the area of Menashe or Zvulun or something like that, it's a fair distance from Jerusalem, I'm never going to do any carbonus. Isn't that interesting what I just said? Well, let me be a little more accurate. If I'm from and I follow the Torah, I will do carbonus rarely and in Jerusalem, and they'll be performed by the priest. Right? I'll go. If I'm from, I'll go Shosh Regalim. If, if I do that, I'll go Shosh Regalim. Maybe another time of the year, possibly. Probably not. And... What will happen is that all my 
carbon activity will be concentrated on those few occasions where the whole thing will be run by the priests. And the idea is that the Kohanim will make sure not to do any of the gila rice or any other kind of junk. And maybe when you're in your own Bama and your neighbors were Canaanim, because that is what happened, unfortunately, the Jews did not get rid of all the Canaanites. So I'm just making this up. Maybe that your neighbors, whenever they do an animal sacrifice, first they knock on wood, you know what I mean? <laughs> they say, oh, it's for good luck. And when you go to the base of Migdash, you'll say, oh, we got to knock on wood now. And the Kohen will say, no, actually, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> we, 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 can, we can eliminate that. And the farmer might say, really? I thought where I come from, everybody's supposed to knock on wood every time do a carbon. And the Kohen will have to explain, you know, with patience, with, uh, you know, using uh, human understanding psychology. It's not really the right idea. It's a superstition. It's not the way Hashem really wants it. What you see over here in the base of Mish, that's the way Hashem wants it. We conform to the book of Ayikra. You may not know it so well. Let me show you some Pesukim. Let me explain what the idea is in our Pasha, for example, let me explain to you why there's no Sa'or and Dvash. The guy might say, when I'm at home and I do my bama, uh, like when my wife had a baby, or we had a bris, or bar mitzvah, and we did a carbon, I was sure to pour a lot of honey in there, because all my neighbors, Gaisha neighbors, they all pour a lot of honey, and actually makes the food taste good, and this and that and the other. And by the way, I heard that the honey is good luck, and it's sweet like the gods, you get a sweet life. And then the Kohen, Yerushalayim, his job is to say, actually, you know, we're, Jews are not supposed to, honey, <laughs> right? Uh, you're not supposed to imitate the neighbors. They do their way. But the way we do it over here is salt and not honey. And the guy will say, why not? Oh, okay, I'll explain to you. And the Kohen would explain, explain to the guy, why, yes, salt and why no honey. You know, and it's like, the, and, and explaining means like, at the Pesach Haggadah, Chacham Rasha Tomeni De'elishol. You you know, you explain to each person that's coming based on Migdosh, depending who they are, where they're holding, either like a Chacham, like a Russia, like a Tameini Delisho. And believe you me, they had all those types. Right? Not everybody knew stuff. A lot of people didn't know stuff. And a lot of people were influenced by the Gush and neighbors all the rest of it. And their idea of what Carbonus is proper in, 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 in the Carbonus process, what's not proper. And the Torah says, um, as you know, that uh, really all the Carbonus should be highly centralized and only done by trained priests who know the do's and the don'ts and what to include and what not to include. And they are buckies in the book of Ayikra. And actually, the regular guy may not be bucking in the book of Ayikra. Particularly, you can't expect the average guy to be bucking in the book of Ayikra in terms of the Torah Shabbat Peh. Correct? Because a ton of stuff is in the Torah Shabbat Peh. I'm talking about Kutchim. You know, rules and regulations about how the carbonus are done, and how the blood, and the this, and the, and the altar, and a hundred other things like that. Uh, and, uh, the, and the job of the Kohen was to do precisely that. Meaning, the Kohanim as a collectivity, as they're working the base of English, if they're doing their job right, constitute a constant teaching program of adult education uh, over centuries to uh, try to persuade the Jewish people to do the right way. Now, the great national tragedy, as we all know, is the following... They never quite worked out. Uh, when the Jews came to Eretz Yisrael, they had a Mishkan. And then we had the Bamos. And there for a couple of hundred years, during the time of the Shoftim. And Bamos means it's not centralized. Maybe they went to the Mishkan for Garmin Pesach and things like that. Uh, maybe not. But, I mean, you're supposed to, but maybe not. 
but it but people could still have their own bombos. And you see, they picked up all kind of stupid ideas from the gum around it. I call, for example, the Pesel Micha story, which clearly reflects a big pagan influence. And the fact that the Jews at that time thought that when they're making an idol, a golden calf, as it turned out to be, it was a positive thing. If you look it up, the lady who gave the money said, now Hashem will be real happy with us, we make an idol. That's that's the Hamunam. You get it? Uh, when the base of Mesh was built, which wasn't until 400 years later, in time of Shlomo Melech, then the rules were supposed to change and everybody shouldn't do the bombas anymore. Uh, then all the karbonas should be done strictly according to the book of Ayikra. Do you understand what I'm saying? When I'm doing a boma, I don't have to follow the book of Ayikra. Is that clear? If I'm doing a boma, which they used to do, as long as it's not trave, as long as it's kosher, as long as it doesn't involve any direct idol worship or something like that, then, you know, it's fine. In fact, as far as I am aware, maybe I'm going on a limb on this, but as far as I'm aware, if I have a private carbon in a bama, why can't I do use honey? And the base amygdala, you can't do. You, you get what I'm saying? And the whole idea was that the bamas were like a uh, bedievet. As we know in Jewish, but regular, it's supposed to be base amygdala, which is a book of Ayikra operation. Um, but a book of Ayikra operation, I'll tell you again, Let's put it this way. Raise your hand if you know the Sifra on the Torah's Kohanim. You know, you don't know that, right? 99.9%. You can learn it, perhaps. Uh, obviously, you can do Yeah, but, but the Talmud Chacham knew it. The Hamunam doesn't know all those those rules. They do their own bombs the way they do it. And indeed, the plan didn't work out because Shlomo Melch eventually built a base of Mikdash. As we know from the successors of Shlomo, it always says, Raka Bumas Lo Saru, that the people would not get rid of the Bumas. So they wouldn't really buy in with the program that they're supposed to um, only do the Karbonus and Besamesh and strictly according to the Book of Ayikra. And that's not what the people did. And of all the kings uh, in the south, even the Frum ones, if I remember correctly, I believe only Kiskia got rid of the Bumas. That's a long time. Even from kings like uh, Asa and Yoshava and so forth, and I believe Uziel, people like that, I think it says over there, Raka Bumas Losaro, that people still kept the Bumas. And so who knows what they were doing in their own backyard? You get it? Uh, this is not an exact example, of course, but it reminds me a little bit, at least in Baltimore, they tried in past years to centralize the burning of the Hummus. Because if every Tom, Dick, and Harry burns their own Hummus in the backyard, you know, they'll burn down the city, possibly. Get it? Because you know, so they don't know what to do. So it's not a bad idea to have the whole thing under the control of a central place, and the fire department's there and all this kind of stuff. It's the same effect that you burn the chametz, but it's done in, a, like I say, a controlled environment. So the same thing, you want to do a carbon, don't do it the wrong way, do it the right way. I, I don't know the Taurus Quantum, I don't know the Sifra and all the rules and regulations. Rashi had not been written at that time. By the way, um... So you, you see where I'm going. Now, this just reminds me of something very cute. And that is that um, there's a famous rush bomb that says, and I've mentioned before, that he was the grandson of Rashi and he told his grandfather off. You didn't do it right. Okay? Nisvachakti, Avizakani, something like that, in Parsha Vayeshev. And uh, I told Rashi, you know, you didn't, you, you didn't do it. You, you, you aimed to get shot. You didn't come up with the newest shots 
of Pipashim Shat and Rashi, according to Rashbam, said, Oh, you're right. And if I have a chance, I'll rewrite it. Now, I don't know if Rashi really meant that or not, but that's a famous Rashbam. So it sounds like that he was claiming uh, that his commentary will be better in terms of Pashim Shat than that of his grandfather Rashi. And the Rashbam is indeed focusing on Pashim Shat, as you know. I like the Rashbam. Especially the new edition with Professor Lakshan, Lakshan Kugel. It's, uh, he did an excellent job and um, with the nice notes. And I, when I sat down now to do it, I had next to me the Mikris Gadols from the English, from the JPS, that Dr. Leventhal was nice enough to get for me. That new set that came out a couple years ago. Believe it or not, the JPS, which is probably dead now, uh, they came out with their own Mikris Gadolas. And I was surprised to see, because they're into manuscripts and all this junk, and at the very beginning of Vayikra, it's all in English, they have the Rashbam, and he has a statement over there, which really is found at the end, in regular Rashbams, at the end of Pekude. And they claimed that it was a mistake in the printer, and so forth and so on. And it's a very interesting Rashbam, especially in connection with the concept of Karbanas, and the Mishkan, and the same Rashbam who said, you know, I told Rashi, and he didn't do it right. The same Rajbam says that I have it in my edition at the very end of um, Pukude. Maybe it really is supposed to be a place in the beginning of Ayikro. And here's the words of the Rajbam. Vasher som libel advayyasreinu. Anybody's really from. Al yazuz minimuke zakeni rabbeni shlomo ba'al yomashmehem. Do not depart from learning Rashi, Pirish Rashi al-Kumash. Okay? That's the way to go. So the same Rajbam that said, I argue with my grandfather, but he said, but you should stick, <laughs> right? You should stick with, with, with Rashi, okay? And, Kirov halachas and drushas shebem krovin lepshutimigros, most of the halachas and drushas in Rashi are shot, not all, right? That's why you argue with them, but most are good. Uh, you can learn everything out of, you know, extra haze and, 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 and you know, uh, twisting of the language and the what we call hermeneutics. And the truth of the matter is, you should learn Rashi and also learn my shot, my peerage also. So you learn Rashi and Rashbam, Now, apparently, it's, um, it's what he called, uh, supposed to be really at the beginning of an introduction to, to, to the book of Ayikro, which I see now Professor Kogel makes mention of in his footnotes. If it's at the beginning of Vayikra, then it actually makes very good sense because Rashi on Vayikra is like indispensable. And the reason I say it's indispensable, Rashi really goes most of the time. And as you know, in the book of Vayikra, there's no dramatic stories, hardly. There's a little bit, very little. Usually it's halacha after halacha, halacha, the ola, the chat, the shlaman, the this, the osham, whatever. You know what I mean? The, the tumah, the tara. And Rashi shares with you, I think you know this, uh, from the Sifra, from the Gemara, from the Shas in general, and so he afforded you the Torah Shavapeh in a very important way uh, that you wouldn't know otherwise. But 2,000 years ago, and 25 and 3,000 years ago, there wasn't any Chumash Rashi, and so the average person had to go by whatever they heard. And if what they heard was all they did at the Bumos, then you see where I'm going. So, Right away, after Shlomo built the base of Mish, the kingdom split in two. Uh, ten of the tribes 
were totally cut off by a Berlin Wall from ever going to base of Mishbeklal, which is very sad because that means if you're all these tribes like Ephraim and Menasha and uh, Don Naftali, Gadasha, you know, Zvulun and so forth, uh, then you never went to the base of Mish. You never saw Kohanaman operation. You never saw the book of Ayikra put into practice. Instead, you saw your local Bumas and, and Avodazara places. The kings and the governments built like Achav places for Avodazara. And even the Frumis, the best they could do was non Avodazara. But who says they did the Garbanus right? So did they follow what it says in Vayikra? They didn't follow what it says in is supposed to be for Karbonus, as you know, they are done in the base of Migdash. It must have been fuzzy to them. Uh, this is my guess. I could be, of course, I could be wrong. But the bet, it seems to me, looking at Tanakh, the book of Vayikra must have been like something unusual because they never saw Bapayal, right? You and I have the benefit of having the Gemara and all that stuff so they can talk about what people saw. But the people at that time did not have it. And it's not surprising a bit that Elianovi would do a carbon outside and bring a fire down and all the rest of it. Now, he had a reason, so Rosh Hashanah and all the rest of the Gemara says. But even without that, that's what you had in the north with the ten tribes. So when was the Book of Eichra actually implemented and when was done on a mass scale? Probably never. But the Baishani, I guess, was better because the Baishani, even though you only had two tribes, you know, the other ten tribes were lost. And by Shani, at least he didn't have a Vodazara. And whoever did bring a carbon, as far as we can tell, brought it to the base of Migdash. And therefore, he had much more better control on the part of the Kohanim. And therefore, the Book of Aikra was probably much better implemented, I suspect. And uh, anyway, as I just tried to share with you, if you think about it, think logically in the past, there has been a history, or what we call in English a reception history, to the Book of Aikra. And I don't mean in the sense of being Mepharshit and reading it, you know, from a scholarly point of view, but I'm talking about implementing it halachalamaisa. When was the Book of Ikra implemented halachalamaisa? Uh, people came to the Mishkan rarely, and people came to the base of Mishkan. Well, as it turned out, since right after Shlomo, the kingdom was split into two, Ruba the Ruba of Klai Yisrael never saw the base of Mishkan, which is very sad. Okay? So all by his reason, it's kind of an anomaly. It's built super fancy by Shlomo Melch had an unlimited checkbook, and nobody went! <laughs> Nobody went. Uh, only if you're in the south, you know, Yehuda, Binyamin, and so forth. And even there, half the kings messed up the base of Mish. It's a, it's a strange history. So, I conclude by saying, give some thought, as I just suggested now, to the fact that this year we happen to have a coincidence. On the one hand, you have the Book of Ayikra, or the Parsha of Ayikra, which starts the ball rolling with a discussion of all the details, nitty-gritty, up and down, about how you're supposed to do Karbonus and what you're not supposed to do. And then you have the Torah, in which he says very famously, he says, what Hashem really wants to do is just listen to what he tells you. You get it? The details are not important. Hachavis Hashem Balos is welcome. Hashem doesn't really need you to bring a Karbonola. Hachavis Hashem Balos is welcome. I, he commanded you to bring a Karbonola. He did it for his reasons, not because he needs it. That's what Shimon's saying. Obviously, Shaul thought, somehow or other, Hashem needs it. In other words, Shaul thought Hashem likes it. But as the Rambam says very famously from a philosophical point of view, God doesn't like or dislike anything because to like or dislike something involves a chesarin in a person. Uh, all emotions involve a certain chesarin. The hour is too late for me to go explain that. But if you give it some thought or take the trouble to look online or something like that, why is emotions in God 
denoted chesaron, which is not possible. And therefore, you have to give a different explanation for what it means, reich nichoach and karbonis and all this in general. I realize all I've done is just scratch the surface and start the discussion, but I've gone way over time as I usually do for uh, talking about the parsha. And in, I'm just trying to show you that, uh, first of all, in terms of content, and second of all, in terms of historical reception, the book of Ayikra is most unusual. And it's had, I would say, something of a tragic history. Uh, although I say again, in the Bayashini period, it was different. But that's too, you know, but later on came the Tzedukim, that was a separate issue. And so uh, it's a very complex uh, subject. With those a few words, I will uh, wish you a good week, a good Shabbos, and thank the Elbam family, and hope that the Neshama uh, of the Nifteris, okay, of the Nifteris, uh, is left from a town, I mean, today it's all Goyim, obviously. The whole town was wiped out by Hitler. 90% of the city was Jewish. That's what you had in the Chai Basisrol Pinchas. The uh, imagine living in a town where you know where where I mean you don't even I don't think you have that in Lakewood, do you? Ninety percent you don't have that in Lakewood. Thirty one hundred out of thirty eight hundred were Jews. I, I you know I, I can't think in America where you have something like a curious y'all you know, but uh, in a regular town not. So this is the old world that uh, that is lost today. But at least you know uh, people like her left the descendants. And they're carrying on the Missouri. Without any further ado, I wish everybody a uh, good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.